All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey guys, Brian here. I just wanted to say a quick thing up front. We got a bunch of new listeners uh, since we were on TechMeme and The Verge and a bunch of other places last week. And a lot of you have been tweeting and emailing directly at me, which is great. Uh, Several of you have brought up things that will definitely change the final drafts of these chapters. But I also want to encourage you to put these comments, corrections, and debates on our website, which is www.internethistorypodcast.com. That way we can all join in the debate. I really want this project to be collaborative because, you know, I'm, I'm no expert historian or anything like that. I just lived through these events just like you all did. So if you ever have anything to share, please share them in the comments on the website so that we can all benefit, not just me. Having said that, uh, I'm at BrianMCC on Twitter, and you can follow at NetHistoryPod to know when new episodes are coming out. And the podcast email is internethistorypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, don't forget to go to iTunes and leave reviews of the podcast, the way the iTunes algorithm works. Um, reviews are just as important as downloads. Okay, so that's all out of the way. Let's get on to the pod. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is part two of chapter three, where we're looking at AOL and the early online services. By the way, I know that last week I uh, got the chapter and title wrong. That was chapter three, part one, and this is chapter three, part two. When we left off, AOL, America Online, had risen to the top of the online services heap. And that sort of success was bound to get the attention of, who else? Microsoft. In fact, AOL had been on Microsoft's radar for quite a long time. AOL had IPO'd all the way back in April of 1992, offering 2 million shares priced at $11.50 each. One man who liked what he saw in AOL was Microsoft's retired co-founder, Paul Allen. He started buying shares in the newly public company, hoping to pool it with other investments that he was making at the time in the online arena. Just as Sears and IBM had with Prodigy, 
Over the years, AOL had found online services to be a glorified money pit. Occasionally, AOL would eke out a meager quarterly profit, but more often, it found itself losing scads of money. The IPO, in fact, was the latest in a long line of cash-raising gambits that AOL had relied upon just to keep the lights on. And AOL had been saved more than once by deep-pocketed outsiders making investments in the company. And so the billionaire Allen was just another deep pocket, or so it seemed. And so initially AOL welcomed his attention. But Allen soon began accumulating shares in AOL at a ferocious rate, steadily increasing his holdings until it became clear that he was intent not just on investing, but in taking over control completely. AOL had to adopt a poison pill stock maneuver to make it prohibitively expensive for Allen to buy a controlling interest. AOL retained its independence in the end, but it was quite a close call. Not long after, Bill Gates came calling, and AOL would have another close call. With an eye toward the eventual Windows 95, Gates was investigating online services as a way to differentiate his new flagship product. As with Allen, AOL welcomed the interest at first, hoping for a partnership, or better yet, a strategic investment from Microsoft that would provide another infusion of much-needed cash. But like Allen, Bill Gates wasn't looking to invest, he was looking to own. Microsoft had kicked the tires at CompuServe, which happened to host Microsoft's customer service forums, and Prodigy also got a once-over. But both companies had stodgy, old-world corporate parents that Microsoft didn't want to get in bed with, necessarily. AOL, on the other hand, was the biggest independent online service in existence. And it was young, brash, and energetic. In short, a better cultural fit with Microsoft. As icing on the cake, AOL had built its success by being Windows-centric, so all things considered, it seemed to be a really good match. The only fly in the ointment was Allen's previous dalliance with the company. Gates did not want to step on his former partner's toes. Gates told other Microsoft executives, quote, It's Paul's thing, so maybe we should back off, end quote. But a larger problem was that Microsoft's reputation preceded it. At the very first meeting between executive teams for the two companies, Gates led off by musing out loud to Steve Case, quote, I can buy 20% of you, or I can buy all of you, or I can go into this business myself and bury you, end quote. Microsoft would later assert that Gates was just thinking out loud, stating the obvious realities of the situation in a sort of philosophical manner, getting down to brass tacks, in other words, but that wasn't how AOL saw it. The AOL executives saw Gates's musing as a threat. Steve Case himself would later say, quote, We didn't trust Microsoft's motives because we knew they could emerge as a major competitor. At one point in the meeting, Siegelman, the Microsoft representative, proposed a 50-50 joint venture. But from our point of view, it was like, okay, we'll help you build it, teach you all about it, and then just when it gets interesting, you'll shoot us. End quote. AOL had flirted with Microsoft, hoping to ride the coattails of the 
upcoming Windows 95 launch. AOL could build an online service for Microsoft and share in the profits. AOL hoped that they could gain the patronage and largesse of Gates's 800-pound software gorilla. And perhaps Case even thought that Microsoft could do for AOL what IBM had done for Microsoft, provide a springboard to ubiquity. But face-to-face with the Beast of Redmond, AOL suddenly had second thoughts. As another AOL executive put it, AOL was offered an unappealing choice, become, quote, a footnote on Bill Gates's resume, end quote, or stand and fight and maybe become, quote, the king of the online industry, end quote. AOL chose to stand and fight. In a way, this was as big a deal as Netscape standing up to Microsoft in the later browser wars. Given AOL's eventual growth and success, had Microsoft swallowed AOL in the early 90s, it's very conceivable that Microsoft would have launched Windows 95 along with the largest online service provider baked right in. The fact that AOL remained independent meant that there would always be a large independent counterbalance to Microsoft during the early stages of the internet era. That counterbalance would be AOL. When AOL formally rejected Microsoft's overtures in June of 1993, it was one hell of a gutsy call. This came before Jan Brandt and her carpet-bombing CD campaign led to AOL's first major growth spurt. But it was a gutsy call that would pay off even more handsomely than even AOL could have imagined at the time. In some ways, the brush with Microsoft and Oblivion was just what AOL needed to grow up and get serious. Prodigy and CompuServe were small fry. If AOL wanted to survive, it would have to do battle with a much more dangerous foe. AOL now had to assume that Microsoft would be developing an online service of its own. And so, as AOL leapt to the head of the online heap, behind the scenes, the company was girding for an even larger battle. AOL returned to Wall Street and sold another 4 million shares, raising some $62 million, and the German media company Bertelsmann did what Microsoft would not, investing $54 million, but only for a 5% stake in AOL. With this new infusion of money, and thanks to the rising stock price, Wall Street loved the carpet bombing and subscriber growth, AOL went on an acquisition spree, eventually totaling $160 million. Many of the companies AOL bought specialized in internet technologies. A perfect example of this was BookLink and its internet browser, which, if you'll remember, AOL snatched from right under Microsoft's nose in November of 1994. It bought companies like Advanced Network Services to build out its dial-up network. It bought a website called the Global Network Navigator, an early version of a search engine slash internet directory. It bought Meteor, Inc., which had produced the interface for Time Warner's ill-fated interactive television experiment in Orlando. And there were even very serious discussions about AOL doing some sort of investment in the young Netscape. This was all part of a larger strategy of survival on AOL's part. Steve Case had gotten internet religion before Bill Gates got his, and he decided that the internet was a way for AOL to differentiate itself 
from the sleeping giant that was Microsoft. If you've been listening closely, then you'll have noticed that we actually haven't spoken much about the internet up until this point. That's because these early online services weren't actually the internet. AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy were all what the industry likes to call walled gardens. They were online services that provided their users with proprietary tools and pre-packaged content developed by the services themselves or their media partners. Little of what online services did, with very few exceptions such as email, interacted with the larger internet on the whole, and none of the services were based on internet standards. In a very real sense, the online services didn't actually want users wandering outside of their networks, their walled gardens, and the control that they had over the content. They'd much prefer if users stayed to play in the garden. The rise of the World Wide Web changed all this radically. The web was something that users were suddenly clamoring for. And that was not entirely a bad thing, of course, since the online services lived off those monthly and hourly fees. When the web exploded onto the scene, it was something else to do online, and another reason to pay the online service providers those fees. So maybe it wasn't such a bad idea to let users wonder a bit. Prodigy was the first to provide access to the web in the fall of 1994. AOL and CompuServe followed suit soon after. On AOL's part, it had always positioned itself as a safe and friendly way to learn about the online world. And so now it tried to begin positioning itself as a safe and friendly way to get on the web. AOL always had a schizophrenic relationship with the web. The web provided a new, wilder online alternative, and in some ways this was in tension with AOL's carefully cultivated online community. After all, would AOL prefer you researched cars on the Car and Driver channel on AOL proper, or by going to the web and visiting Car and Driver's website? AOL hoped that maybe it could split the difference. As AOL executive Ted Leonsis put it, AOL could become, quote, the carnival cruise lines, end quote, of the internet, the trusted guide to places unknown. In large part, AOL blurred the distinctions because, for a lot of users, all of this was new anyway. For all a new online user knew, AOL meant email. AOL meant chat. AOL meant internet. AOL meant online, period. For the online newbies, the fact that AOL and the web weren't one and the same thing wasn't an important distinction. And in the end, AOL was happy to straddle this ambiguity. AOL branded itself as America's answer to online adventure. It wanted to be, quite literally, America online. And whether users stayed in AOL's garden or wandered off to the larger web, what did AOL care? Steve Case would say, quote, AOL is the internet, and a whole lot more, end quote. Users still had to pay those monthly and hourly fees, whatever they did. Would internet and web positioning be enough to protect AOL's early online lead? By late 1995, the situation was unclear. 
Microsoft had, of course, gone on to develop its own online service, dubbed the Microsoft Network, or MSN. During its initial development, it was a walled garden just like AOL, but the Internet Tidal Wave memo that you'll remember from a previous chapter precipitated a 180-degree turn to embrace the web, the Internet, and Internet standards. When Windows 95 users clicked on the icon labeled the Internet, they found themselves on an MSN sign-on screen. And so, obviously, this was hugely threatening to AOL. If all those new Windows 95 users came to think that the Internet meant MSN, then how could AOL convince them that the Internet really meant AOL? By the time MSN launched alongside Windows 95, AOL had a lead of more than 3 million members. The question now was whether or not that much of a lead would be enough to hold off the Microsoft hordes. And this is where, like Netscape, AOL faced the threat of Microsoft bundling its services directly into every copy of Windows 95. As with Internet Explorer, that MSN icon on the home screen threatened to be a powerful advertisement for Microsoft's products. In the face of this, AOL and Steve Case began rattling the same Justice Department cages that Netscape eventually did. As Case put it, Windows was to computers, quote, what the dial tone is to the phone industry, end quote. Microsoft should offer all online services as a part of a level playing field, Case insisted, because as he told Wired Magazine, quote, the fact that Microsoft has an 85% market share of this dial tone and wants to hardwire their own service into it in an anti-competitive way is not a good thing. Case even appeared at a joint press conference with the CEOs of CompuServe and Prodigy to release an open letter to Bill Gates demanding the unbundling of MSN from Windows 95. AOL executives met with Justice Department lawyers, and the government added AOL's concerns to its monitoring of Microsoft's behavior. Even so, the outlook for AOL seemed precarious. What with the MSN icon sitting right there on the desktop of every new Windows 95 machine, a research firm predicted that between 11 million and 19 million users would sign up for MSN in its first year, based on sales projections for Windows 95. There were only a grand total of 10 million online users of any online service at that time. But in the end, MSN never exactly took off. Even though a reported 190,000 users signed up in the first week alone, after MSN launched in August of 1995, it only had around 375,000 users by that same November. And this was during a time period when AOL was bringing in 250,000 new members every single month, thanks to its avalanche of free disks. Microsoft attempted to copy AOL's carpet bombing techniques, but to limited effect. Efforts to boost MSN weren't helped by the fact that reviews of the Microsoft service were generally poor. The influential Wall Street Journal technology columnist Walt Mossberg rated MSN, quote, dead last, end quote, among the major online services. MSN felt like what it was, a rush job, a copycat. 
MSN had been forced to launch with fewer content partners because most of the big names were already under contract with AOL or Prodigy. And even though MSN also had the internet, it didn't have a different internet than AOL offered, so who cared? AOL was something that Americans had come to enjoy and trust. And so, consequently, AOL's early lead in online services held. In a way, AOL succeeded in fending off Microsoft by doing what Netscape had attempted but failed to do. Netscape had tried to jump in front of Microsoft and dominate the browser market, thereby claiming a dominant position that would protect it from Microsoft's eventual predations. Mark Andreessen had hoped that the browser could be a platform built on top of the web and thus rival Microsoft's operating system platform. But people didn't care about browsers, really. They cared about the Internet. And for many Americans, AOL was the Internet. It was a triumph of branding. AOL had succeeded in branding itself as America Online, and MSN never was able to challenge this. MSN was destined to be a second fiddle to AOL, a seeming me-too copycat. And the bizarre thing is, AOL achieved this in part because of Bill Gates's strategic decision. By the time Microsoft came calling to do a deal over web browsers, Bill Gates was convinced that Netscape was public enemy number one, not AOL. AOL was just that online service he had once tried to buy. As we've said, for better or worse, Gates decided that the browser market was the more important long-term strategic battlefield, not online services. Microsoft thought its survival depended on winning the browser war. Steve Case played a shrewd Machiavellian game where he signed the exclusive browser deal with Microsoft and not with Netscape. AOL was just as terrified of Microsoft as Netscape was, but Case couldn't turn down the opportunity he was offered. At the exact time when Microsoft was threatening to cut off Windows licensees for computer makers who dared to put a navigator icon on the Windows home screen, here was Bill Gates offering to put an AOL icon in an Internet Services folder, thereby canceling out the intrinsic advantage that MSN had. If Microsoft wanted to neuter its own online service offering, AOL's biggest competitor, well, who was Steve Case to look a gift horse in the mouth? AOL's decision to make Internet Explorer and not Netscape Navigator its default web browser was one of the biggest reasons that Netscape's meteoric growth began to stall out. In fact, if you listen to my interview with Lou Montuli, he says this was the main reason for Netscape's eventual failure. But from AOL's perspective, it was all a giant win. The browser deal with Microsoft ensured that AOL would remain for, at least the time being, America's favorite entryway onto the internet itself. While AOL succeeded in ducking the Microsoft MSN assault, it meanwhile had a solid year in 1995. And it would have an even better 1996, growing to more than 6 million subscribers. At this point, one out of every three people surfing on the internet did so via AOL's dial-up lines. This growth showed up on the bottom line as well, AOL recorded revenues of $1 billion for the first time in 1996, tripling what the business had brought in only a year previously. 
AOL's stock had risen 30-fold since its IPO, and its market cap eventually reached $5 billion. If 1995 had been the year the web went mainstream, then 1996 was the year it went parabolic. While it still insisted on giving lip service to its own walled garden of content, AOL was now riding the web's growth like a bucking bronco. And that was not always an easy thing to do. Starting at 4 a.m. on August 7, 1996, AOL's service went down for about 19 hours. The service outage made front-page news around the country and made AOL the butt of jokes on late-night television talk shows. For AOL, it was a major public relations black eye, but at the same time, a validation of how important the service had suddenly become in everyday American life. This wasn't just some early adopter's playground anymore. AOL was now how Americans lived their lives online. Imagine the chaos that would occur today if there were no email, no web, no anything for 19 straight hours. The internet itself hadn't crashed, of course, but America's ability to access it had. And suddenly that was a very big deal. As AOL's Vice President of Corporate Communications, Gene Villanueva, said later, quote, In a way, the press coverage was the highest compliment ever paid to us. End quote. The service outage came on the exact same day that NASA announced the discovery of the first indications of water on Mars. And yet, AOL was leading the news on CNN. Worse was to come, however, because... While AOL was now the country's largest internet service provider, it was still competing in a crowded field. In addition to Prodigy, CompuServe, and MSN, there were thousands of independent mom-and-pop ISPs springing up all around the country. An independent ISP didn't have the packaged content and proprietary chat rooms that AOL had. They just gave you one thing, the internet. You dialed in and you were on the web, quick and dirty. Increasingly, that seemed to be all people really wanted. To stand out from their online service brethren, ISPs chose to compete on price. A low monthly fee of $19.95 generally got you unlimited hours of usage. Again, unlimited. This put quite a bit of pressure on AOL, which still depended on overages and hourly rates for the bulk of its revenue. Why was the internet worth $2.95 an hour on AOL when you could browse unlimitedly elsewhere for a flat fee? The pressure started to slow AOL's meteoric growth. In a quarterly report at the end of 1996, AOL reported signing up 2.1 million subscribers, but at the same time losing 1.3 million subscribers who left the service for the other, cheaper ISPs. A research firm study revealed that 50% of users were now reaching the internet via independent ISPs, while only 35% used an online service like AOL. Only six months earlier, those numbers had been exactly reversed. AOL was still the market leader in terms of sheer numbers, but this competition and customer churn started to worry Wall Street. It became obvious to AOL management that the hourly fee structure it had depended on for all of its revenue up until this point was probably unsustainable. MSN hastened the end of the hourly fee era when, in October 1996, 
it announced that it would provide its service on an unlimited basis for $19.95 a month. AOL decided that if it had to make the leap, it was better to do so sooner rather than later. And so, starting with the December 1996 billing cycle, AOL announced to its members that it would switch all of them over to unlimited usage plans for the same price of $19.95 a month. There were some concerns internally about AOL's ability to handle all the increased usage that would inevitably occur. After all, members who had previously tried to limit their time to a few hours a month could now, if they wanted, just leave their America Online connections going 24-7. AOL's own testing suggested that the actual usage would probably only increase 50% or so in an unlimited usage paradigm, and theoretically, the network could handle that. But that was taking into account existing users. Wasn't the point of flat rate pricing to stop the churn and win back old customers, and maybe even entice new ones? Steve Case told a Wired reporter that he thought the company had the infrastructure in place to handle, quote, runaway growth, unquote, but he could not have been more wrong about that. The very first day that user accounts were switched to unlimited pricing, AOL member sessions leapt from 1.6 million hours to 2.5 million hours. The numbers would only go up from there as, over the course of the month, more and more member plans qualified for the switchover. In addition, December was, of course, the height of the holiday season, and plenty of new computers were going to be unwrapped as gifts. Now, with the promise of unlimited usage, all those free AOL discs were suddenly a lot more enticing. AOL signed up a record half million members in the December month alone, and AOL's daily usage numbers were now up to 4.5 million hours each and every day. The service simply couldn't handle it. There were too many people trying to log in all at one time. All across the country, instead of the familiar guttural noises of the modem connecting, AOL users began to hear only busy signals. Frustrated users would try and try over and over again to connect, hoping against hope to get lucky. And if users did get online, they tended to stay on as long as possible because there was no way of telling when they'd have the chance to get on again. Once more, there was nationwide consumer outrage. The jokes began to circulate again about, quote, America on hold. CompuServe launched an advertising campaign to attempt to take advantage of its rival's misfortune using the phone number 1-800-NOT-BUSY. AOL's initial efforts to assuage its frustrated users were ham-handed at best. In an email to members, Case suggested that one solution to the problem would be if everyone simply showed restraint and maybe use the service a little less often. This echoed Prodigy's disastrous attempts to discourage usage, and it received a similarly angry response. After all, weren't AOL's customers paying for unlimited service now? How could AOL charge for a product that its users couldn't, well, use? There were rumblings of a class-action lawsuit, and various state attorney generals began talking seriously about launching investigations into violations of consumer laws. 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. In the end, AOL would spend hundreds of millions of dollars in a crash program to attempt to increase its network capacity. Millions more was set aside to refund users and head off lawsuits and government scrutiny. Television ads were suspended so as to not encourage too many new signups until the problems were fixed. And over the first few months of 1997, the busy signals slowly went away and the service started to get back to normal. But the especially positive news was that the users stayed loyal. Even in the face of this new and larger, well-publicized fiasco, the churn was subsiding. It turned out users really did enjoy unlimited usage. And once they could actually take advantage of the unlimited usage, members did so in ever-increasing numbers. Once more, AOL survived only on the strength of its branding as America's online gateway. A lot of Americans didn't want any other way to get online, maybe didn't even know there was another way. A new AOL executive named Bob Pittman said, quote, Long lines are endemic at Disney World. Folks hate them, but offer Six Flags as an alternative and they look at you like you are crazy. They don't think anything is a substitute for Disney. End quote. AOL continued to survive and continued to thrive for one reason, according to Pittman. Quote, it's the brand, stupid. End quote. Pittman was one of the people who had been brought in to make sure that AOL remained the Disney of the online world. The former co-founder of MTV, Pittman had strong connections to Hollywood and Madison Avenue. He, along with longtime executive Ted Leonsis, was tasked with taking AOL to the next level. Pittman, as the head of the newly formed AOL Networks division, helped lead AOL's drive to create sources of revenue beyond simple membership fees. Now that AOL couldn't charge by the hour anymore, new revenue streams were sorely needed. In this regard, AOL was, not for the first time in its life, right at the right place at the right time. Corporate America was more than ready to begin experimenting with online advertising in 1997, and AOL was able to step forward once more and do some hand-holding for the online inexperienced. Only $300 million had been spent on online advertising in all of 1996, 
compared to $34 billion on television commercials. But this was due to change in a big way by 1997. Major brands like Ford and Coca-Cola were coming online, and they were much more comfortable testing the waters with the friendly, controlled environment AOL offered, as opposed to the wild and wooly World Wide Web, of course. And advertisers were comfortable dealing with a known quantity like Bob Pittman. Ads began showing up everywhere on AOL, even in those infamous chat rooms. But customers did not revolt, and almost overnight, AOL had some invaluable new revenue streams. Where once AOL had to pay outside partners to create content for its services, the growing user numbers meant that the company now found it could charge rents. Pittman started landing major deals. For example, CBS Sportsline paid to become the primary property on the AOL Sports Channel. Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble competed to pay ever-larger contracts to be the featured bookseller on AOL. 1-800-Flowers paid $25 million to sell flowers online. And a company named Telsave Holdings signed a $100 million contract to market long-distance services to AOL members. These new revenue streams were not chump change. At the same time, Ted Leonsis represented AOL's continued conflicted attitude towards the larger internet. Leonsis led AOL Studios, a division of the company dedicated to finding, promoting, or even producing content for AOL. Leonsis had a vision for making AOL Studios into a, quote, real studio that would rival movies and television in creating original content. Leonsis continued the Disney analogy, telling Wired Magazine, quote, We need to build some franchises. We need our own Lion King, end quote. Under Leonsis, AOL poured money into its own content. Some of it was successful, like the Motley Fool section, the Planet Out site for gays and lesbian users, and the Not, a site catering to weddings. But other attempts, channels, shows, e-magazines, etc., were largely forgettable, while at the same time being very expensive to produce. The overriding strategy was to try to create content that could compete in interest and value with what was popping up all over the web. This was the long-standing love-hate relationship AOL had with the outside internet. AOL very much wanted to create content that was exciting enough to compete with the internet for user attention. And if it couldn't compete with web content, AOL wanted to repackage web content. It created a broad range of channels, grouped by interest, which pointed people to AOL-vetted web items. Once again, dreams of becoming a platform began to creep into AOL's strategic thinking. Leonsis thought that AOL's sheer size and popularity meant it could evolve from being merely a training wheels for the internet into something like an arbiter of internet content on the whole. Leonsis insisted, quote, The big will get bigger, and the small will get marginalized. This isn't going to be a business where 380,000 websites are going to be important. End quote. Steve Case was a little more diplomatic, saying, quote, It's not a choice between AOL and the Internet. 
being able to go to America Online and click on the sports icon and get the best sports services is important, and people are going to do that far more often than they'll open up a search engine and randomly surf for websites, end quote. Whether or not this was actually true remained to be seen, but for its part, Wall Street didn't care whether or not AOL rode the fine line between merely being gatekeeper for the internet or actually competing with the internet for user interest. All Wall Street saw was that AOL had beaten CompuServe, beaten Prodigy, and even beaten MSN. It had survived technical and PR fiascos, and somehow managed to come out the other side with its brand and its user esteem intact. This improbable success over competition and adversity was coupled with growing user numbers and, eventually, solid profits. AOL hit 10 million users in 1997. It would pass 15 million users in 1998, and revenues grew accordingly, Beginning in 1997, regular profits even began to appear on AOL's bottom line. AOL's market cap began a steady march towards $100 million. Its stock leapt nearly 600% in 1998 alone. $10,000 invested in AOL in 1993 was worth more than $848,000 only five years later. AOL put its chaotic birth story behind it, and it was eventually destined to become synonymous with the greater internet, especially in the early dot-com era. And that would make it very, very powerful in the years ahead. <laughs> 